Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This podcast is produced and recorded in the studios of NPR affiliate WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. You know, when I started teaching um, now, it seems like decades ago because, well, it it was. Um, You know, I thought when I went into the classroom for the first time, if I had the perfect lesson my students would love me and they would learn. And I spent all my time trying to think about what that perfect lesson looked like. And and I think a lot of us went through that journey when we first started teaching. And as I taught more and more, um, I came to realize that it wasn't about the perfect lesson, it was about the perfect relationship. And that's really what I think we're gonna be talking about a lot today. My guest is Don Berg, who is an education researcher and practitioner who has focused much of his career, if not all of it, on understanding how to better enact authentic pedagogy with students. That's my terminology, and he might disagree with that term. Uh, <laughs> but that's what I'm calling it for right now. He has authored multiple books, including a 2022 released book titled uh, Schooling for Holistic Equity, How to Manage the Hidden Curriculum for K-12. Uh, Don, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, and I don't disagree with what you said. That's okay, good. I, you know, when I was <laughs> when I was typing that up, I'm like, I've I've read enough of of the book that I think he would be okay with this, but I never want to make assumptions. So, I, I think to get started, you know, when I was reading through s- segments of the book that you just released, um, you know, the first thing that struck me is that this journey for you professionally is incredibly personal, and and I say that mm-hmm. because of many of the stories that you recounted in the book. Can you just start this discussion by, you know, sort of telling your story, uh, you know, going all the way back to uh, your times in in school in um, in, in the Long Beach area and, and right. sort of how you experienced education and, and how that's framed the way that you're now approaching it as a professional and a researcher? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, my story begins like I went to through regular public schools. Uh, most of my career in, in as a student, um, and and that was uh, and I was a successful student. Um, so I you know got into magnet programs and 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 studied hard and got into an elite college and stuff like that. So on the terms of the system, I was quite successful. But then my actual lived experience of it um, was was not the kind of fulfilling thing that I really. Uh, suspect is possible um and and one one moment that that stands out is i was either in fifth or sixth grade and my mom asked what do you want to be when you grow up and i said i want to be a professional student (laughs) i didn't say teacher i said student Um, and that's because i realized with my family part of what we did was i learned how to do museums in my family the way we would do museums when we were with school was terrible <laughs> and yet i would we, in our in our summers off and and times off and we had a chance to go places we would often drop by a museum and it could be you know interesting art museum or, or a science museum or just the local historical society and we'd go through it and it would just be so fascinating because we'd walk up to something and say what is that what do you think that is what you know and and it would it was a real engagement with whatever it was mm-hmm. and and that was in stark contrast to how school actually worked for me. Um, and so, so in my young mind, it was like, oh, studenting, that's awesome. But I don't know about that teaching. You know, teaching wasn't, I couldn't see that being the thing. And when, when I got older, um, I actually uh, worked with children uh, in summers uh, it, it, after, it, between college years, I was doing things with kids for the first time in the summers. And I was like, wow, that's really fulfilling and interesting. And, and I found that there was, I had a passion and an interest in working with children, but the, the classroom wasn't the place. I, I just couldn't see flipping from the student side to the other side of the teacher's desk mm-hmm. being that great an improvement. Um, and so I ended up spending um, many years um, doing completely different things. I homeschooled other people's kids for about five years. Um, didn't work out a sustainable business model, but you know <laughs> that was in the 90s before you know like now it'd be a lot different. <laughs> yeah. um, and microschools are now a thing. I was doing a microschool before microschools were a thing. Um, and so that's where that's my practitioner side was I, you know, was working with kids directly. I actually spent about 25 years working with kids in before school, after school, uh, my own teaching programs, uh, summer programs, all kinds of things. Um, 
and so I, I have this grounding in working with children um, and leading them and helping them find discover the world. Um, and then I went back and got a degree in psychology so that I could like figure out, okay, where's the disconnect? What's the why is it that that the learning stuff is so interesting and exciting and and exploration is really interesting and exciting, um, but I couldn't translate that into or figure out how how that should relate to schooling, um, and so that's where you know my focus was in psychology. My degrees in psychology, mm-hmm. uh, and specifically I studied motivation um, and and how does that work um, in school settings. Um, so yeah, that that's you know it, it's been this transition of you know, having the passion for learning, but not seeing that happen in the right way in school. Um, and then trying to figure out, okay, how can that, how can schooling be, how, how, why, why don't I see that there? Um, and I, and mm-hmm. I think that's a, you know, why I had to write a big book about it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. When, when you were unpacking um, your own experiences in the book, there were a couple places, and they weren't right next to each other, but there was a couple places where you used terms that um, really stood out to me. One of those was the term fochievement. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about what that means to you? Yeah, so uh, fake achievement. So so achievement is just getting the, the, the way that our society understands achievement is you got the grades, you got the test scores, you got the certificates, you got the diplomas. That's achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, but a significant part of what that is um, is just uh, uh, going through the motions to get that bookkeeping mark, you know, like that that mark. Not the you're not delving into and engaging with the content, the lesson, or the the field of study. Um, you're just saying, okay, how do I pass this test? How do I get that diploma? Um, and so, uh, and there, there's a big whole literature um, that that uh, Howard Gardner, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the multiple intelligences guy. Um, wrote a whole book about um, going into like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, they studied uh, uh, people who, or there's a famous example. Um, it's the beginning of a video series, uh, professional development series. Um, I'm forgetting the name. One of them is called The Mind of Your Own, A Mind of Their Own. And they go to interview Harvard and MIT graduates and faculty at graduation, and they give them very simple questions. And so, like, okay, uh, why are there seasons? Or, or here's a, a bulb, a, a wire, and a battery. Can you light, make it light up? And, and these people who are at the top of the game, you know, they they're graduating mm-hmm. from the most elite institutions in our in the globe, in the world, and they could not answer those questions. Uh, these are elementary school questions. <laughs> you know, that's the level of science that they were talking about, and right. they failed them. Um, and so there's this se- severe disconnect between how the institutions actually uh, reward and, and and generate what we call achievement and the actual knowledge and understanding that is supposed to be going with that is that there's a mismatch there and it doesn't always go with it. In fact, if Gardner's evidence is any indication, over half of the people with advanced degrees got there through faux achievement of some kind. Uh, mm-hmm. They do not understand even their own fields of specialty, let alone all the other things they were supposed to have learned. Um, so that's what faux achievement is, is, is we have a systemic problem with the disconnect between what an education should actually be, which is a better grasp of reality and, and being able to successfully operate in that reality, and how, how you know, the, the, the bookmarks or the, the uh, bookkeeping that, that mm-hmm. signifies that. Um, so there's a bit of a disconnect there. When when you were talking about this, or, or I'm sorry, writing about it in your book, mm-hmm. I definitely got the sense that you were dissatisfied in retrospect. Do you, do you ever, do you feel now that there were moments in time where the, um, the technical achievements that you were able to achieve as a student um, mm-hmm. created a, a sense of an imposter phenomenon for you? Did it go to that level, I guess is what I'm asking? Um it didn't quite go to that level for well I, I should say it didn't very often like it wasn't it wasn't a frequent thought but it was mm-hmm. sort of like yeah okay you know like particularly around mathematics um i i was very clear in that that it wasn't even imposter syndrome it was just like i just recognized that that's not there's a disconnect there i don't really understand what i'm doing mm-hmm. um uh the, the one of the one of the stories in the book i, I talk about uh, mr schuster who taught um one of the classes, I think it was geometry and trigonometry. And it was one year, my 
sophomore year of high school, I believe. Um, went through the whole year, and the next year, like I, I take the assessment test at the beginning, and I fail it so completely that the teacher's like, I can't catch you up on a whole year. <laughs> it's as if I never <laughs> took Schuster's class, you know. Um, and so she put me on test prep. And so, you know, I I'd, 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 um, had taken the SAT mm-hmm. um, for the first time and then, like, was not satisfied with my score because, like, like, my best friend in high school got a perfect score on the SAT. And he was one of five in our magnet program. Okay, so this is my this is my cohort. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was looking at my score, you know, a measly eleven hundred, which is like it's not a shabby score, right? Um, but in my context, it was. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, I got to better at that. So I um, d- decided to take it again, and and I, you know, the teacher who couldn't teach me a whole year, she said, okay, here's here's SAT preparation manual, just you know, go for it. So I spent a whole semester just studying the books about the SAT, and I don't know, you know, if you remember how these books work, um, they're not about the test, they're about or they're not about the math, they are about the test, they're only mm-hmm, about the test. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't actually teach you any math in those books. They teach you how to take the test in the book. Right. So I actually had more than or about twice as much improvement on my test score in math. Then I did in English, and I was taking a regular English course, and I should have been learning that. It was better because I was actually being taught it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it, it was one of those things where, yeah, the 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 evidence of my, you know, what I knew I could do in math was different from the credit I had on my transcript and, you know, able to move forward and things like that. I was like, yeah, I went to college, and it, I didn't exactly think of myself as a fake, but I knew I was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it yeah. wasn't the... A, a, a dilemma for me. It was just like, oh, that's the way the world works. <laughs> and I, I want to change that. I don't want the world to work that way. One of the other uh, stories and, and terms that that uh, I found very poignant um, was where you talked about uh, the topic of being a pawn um, mm. when you were in school. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So Clark Jett, um, uh, I kind of wonder, I, I haven't been in touch with him, so I don't know where you went. But when I was in sixth grade, this I know was sixth grade, um, we were lining up at the end of a recess, and and I forget what the topic of the conversation. But he pointed out that we were pawns in this game of adults because we were, um, we were both from an affluent suburb uh, of Long Beach called Lakewood. So Lakewood was kind of the uh, an affluent nearby city when and and we were bused into inner city Long Beach, uh, which is famous for um, uh, Freedom Riders. Uh, that was one of the high schools in my district. Um, and so anyway, you, there's, there's, it's clearly inner city, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're bust into this, um, school, w- which is predominantly black and we're integrating the school in this late seventies, uh, by being bust in, but you know, we're, we're not actually mixing with those kids. We, our program is kind of separate. Um, and so Clark was like pointing out that, that we were pawns in this adult game of like integrating the school, which blew my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I realized like, Oh my God, that's right. <laughs> um, and, and so for me, that's really actually, that actually is, is, is points to the crux of the issue. I don't think I wrote about it this way, but, but it really is the crux of the issue is like, I didn't feel like my life was my own at that point. I felt like a pawn when he pointed it out. It's like, Oh, that really rang so true for me that it was, yeah, I remember it years and years later. Um, and so that's part of what, what the the foundation of the book really is, is like, okay, what would it mean if kids really owned their experience in school? Um, and what would that look like? And, and for some people, like the context I come from is uh, schools that are called democratic or that give cho- kids a lot of choice about how they're going to operate. Um, and so in contrast to sort of more mainstream schools where you okay you're assigned to this teacher and you take this class and and especially at the elementary level you don't get much choice at all mm-hmm. um and even later you have a limited amount of choice well imagine the opposite which is well what do you want to learn how do you want to learn it who do you want to learn it with um and and having the power to actually make those choices um and so what i found uh, in my research was that the kids who are exposed in that to that environment that operate in that environment have a much stronger sense of their own. Like, well, what I specifically measured was they have uh, they maintain their intrinsic motivation for mm-hmm. doing the regular everyday stuff in school. Um, so they don't become disengaged and disillusioned, and uh, which is typical of the mainstream. So so then I'm like, 
okay, that's interesting. But when you look at how those schools operate, I, I can guarantee you just about every teacher I've talked to who's operating in a more mainstream environment says, oh, that's not really possible here. And so they, they don't have any way of drawing lessons from it. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I want to do is, okay, they're too weird to, <laughs> uh, to, ta- to draw lessons directly from, but that doesn't mean there's not something to learn there. Um, and that's where the, the psychology is really important, is to look at, oh, they're all human beings. And they are actually, there's some things we can think about in terms of motivation uh, that, that really can drive things in a different way. So just before we leave that, that point that you were just making uh, about sort of the disengagement of mainstream schools, mm-hmm. there, there is sort of, uh, in, in a very real sense, a crisis of engagement for both mm-hmm. teachers and students. Um, and you actually you know, cite some of the NEA statistics in your book. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, the so so looking at motivation is and disengagement. So those are closely related, and you can kind of lump them together to some mm-hmm. degree. Um, is the motivation engagement data has been very clear for decades. Like there's there's no question. Now they first developed those instruments and things in the '80s. So anything before that's not really very good in terms mm-hmm. of what they're actually measuring. But beyond after that, since the '80s. Um, it's been very clear. It's been very well validated. It's very, very um, strong data um, and data sets very large um, is, like you said, both teachers and students are disengaged. Uh, Gallup data, for instance, um, 70 percent of teachers are disengaged. Um, and that's par for the course in U.S. workplaces. So that's not unusual. That's part, you know, exactly how many workers are disengaged in the U.S. economy. Um, but in when you talk about learning, um, instead of a workplace, like that's fundamental to learning, um, being engaged is mm-hmm. and, and being motivated to learn. Um, and that, that's one of the causes of faux achievement is, well, if you're diminishing their uh, or uh, diminishing their motivation and engagement, then you're inherently deteriorating. The learning is going to deteriorate. Um, so so that's where there is very strong data. It's, it's very clear. Uh, and I would say it's, you know, um, my, one of the parallels I draw is within the 1870s, hospitals were declared more dangerous than battlefields. Um, mm-hmm. So more people were dying in hospitals than would be dying on uh, the water, water battlefield of Waterloo was the comparison. Um, and what changed was that by the 1940s and 50s, when things started really to hospitals actually stopped killing people, um, then what happened was germ theory. Um, and so in case of this case, what I'm bringing forward is saying, you know, the motivation engagement stuff, we have what's called self-determination theory. And we have the basis for saying, oh, OK, we can actually really do things differently. Um, and, and that's that's where we, we have a model for how motivation works. And it's it's not complicated. Uh, it's just that schools are organized in a way that doesn't really take advantage of that. When schools and, and, and I'm going to define that broadly. So sure. when schools themselves are developing curricula, the faculty and and the administration, but then more broadly, even out to educational policy. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that, you know, your argument is that they focus on um, a very technical, scientific approach to education rather than more of an artistic, human-oriented education. Is that a fair characterization of your standpoint? Um, no, it's not actually. And, and, and so th- this is the irony of, of it is in one sense, you, you could, I, I understand why you would perceive them as taking that attitude mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they're, they've got the what works clearing house and they're trying to talk about evidence based and trying to, you know, they're trying to be scientific. Um, so they want that. But the problem is that they aren't actually based in uh, they they need to go a little more a level down in terms of more basic science about learning than they currently do. So my critique of them is that their ambitions to be scientific are not being properly realized because they don't have a proper theory of learning uh, mm-hmm. and how it works. If if you like like I was at a conference recently and you know it's like okay we've got all this great science well yes um, however. So, so the the typical dichotomy there is, you know, direct instruction versus discovery learning, mm-hmm. um, and it's like that's a false dichotomy. Those aren't. 
you, you, the evidence is clear. If you're focused narrowly on reading instruction, then direct instruction works in a certain way. And, and discovery learning, as they say, uh, doesn't work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if you broaden that out, what you find is that, well, that the dichotomy is false because what you're doing is you're assuming a certain way that they arrived at the task of reading. And when you put them in the context of being forced to do something that they didn't want to do, then the direct instruction is going to be more powerful. Now, I'm not saying exploration for learning to read is the best way. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is you need to look at what is the social context in which that academic lesson was taught. And when you put the social context is they were forced to be there, they didn't want to be there, they were not having their psychological needs supported, and so they become disengaged from reading. And this is work that, uh, you know, you can look at Zhang Zhao's uh, work, uh, What Works May Hurt, is that there's side effects of doing the reading instruction in a way that doesn't take advantage of children's inbuilt motivational uh, reality. Um, and that's what m most of the way the main, why the mainstream is, you know, kids become disengaged is because they're not structured socially the appropriate way. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so I would say I'm, I'm not, it's not uh, art versus science. I would say it's um, why, how do we use the science of motivation and engagement to better inform the social structure of how we create schools? Right. And then embed that academic structure within uh, making that social structure a, a prior condition for good instruction. Does yeah. that make sense? It, it, <laughs> it absolutely does make sense. Uh, you you mentioned um, a few minutes ago that, that you were influenced by self-determination theory. Um, yes. So, so let's unpack that just for a few minutes. Um, so the... A typical school and a typical mm -hmm. school system, the way that it's enacted, the, what you've just been talking about, how does that not necessarily allow students to achieve uh, the highest levels of self-determination? And, and maybe another way that I might phrase that question as you're mm -hmm. pondering that, do schools create sort of a, a sense of learned helplessness on the part of students where we're actually short-circuiting what's naturally there for them as learners because of the way that the school uh, environment is structured. Yeah. So um, as I, as someone who studies psychology, I would say learned helplessness is probably too strong a word, but mm -hmm. a form of it or a precursor to it is what they're creating. Mm -hmm. And so, so this basically just gets back to uh, when we look at the school environment, um, like when I said, you know, we have to go to a more basic level of science is like, before we talk about reading, we need to talk about why are they in the room? Why are they there? Are they there because they chose that class? Because they chose that teacher? Because they chose something? Now, choice in the American context is 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 an appropriate way to talk about it. Um, but choice is not technically the the, the fundamental thing. Mm -hmm. What it is is support for their autonomy, their sense that they are the cause of their actions and that they're effective in taking those actions. Um, so autonomy is a primary human need. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, you, are familiar with air, water, food, shelter. Okay. Mm -hmm. You'd die if you don't get those met. And you're also familiar with the need for sleep. Now sleep deprivation won't kill you, but it will, the dysfunctions that result can kill you. Um, so, but you don't die directly from a lack of sleep. Well, the symptoms of a lack of sleep are more anxiety, more depression, more other forms of psychological distress. Mm-hmm. And the symptoms of a lack of autonomy are anxiety, depression, forms of psychological distress. So that's a primary need. It's, it's, it's important and fundamental. And that's what self-determination theory is all about is, you know, we, we, they discovered autonomy, competence, and relatedness are all crucial needs in the sense that you get less well-being when they're not met and more well-being when they do. Mm -hmm. So schools, when you look at how schools operate, just the fact that they're in the classroom and being told what to do, how autonomy supportive is that? And that's that's where it's like, oh, okay. It doesn't matter what the agenda is in the classroom. If the kids perceive themselves not to be the source of their own activities, 
they're not going to be learning as deeply as they could. Hmm. Now, I th do think it's too strong to say it's learned helplessness, um, but you're doing something not far off of that, and that's what the raft of data on disengagement shows. The levels of disengagement go you know, every year, and and even in, in everything, not only across the year, but within the year, um, motivation and engagement decline. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's not, there's a, there's the reason that motivation is changes in the negative way is because you're not getting those primary needs supported. That's a, that's a primary need support leads to better motivations. No matter what the, what the activities are, if you're supporting their needs, mm -hmm. they're going to figure out how to, you know, deal with that environment one way or the other. Um, and so that's where the, the diagnosis for schooling is not enough need support. Um, I know that, and, and, you know, I, I'm in a higher ed environment and, and we're yep. spending a lot of time talking about student well-being. And I know from my yep. colleagues, uh, around the state of Ohio that are in K-12 system, they're, they're also talking about that. Yep. Do you, do you think that there is a link? Um, and I, and I know that this isn't a focus of your book, but you know, just you as a, as a professional and a, and a person thinks about this, do you think there is a link between what's happening in, in terms of the motivational environment of schools, um, the faux achievement that you talked about, those sorts of things being upon, could there be a link between that and what we're seeing as being a, an issue with student well-being across the, the lifespan of our students? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a um, researcher, Gene Twenge, who has looked at the well-being data since the 1940s. And the well-being data is clear. It has been declining and in steady decline since the 1940s. So this, in some one sense, is nothing new. Mm -hmm. um, but because of recent events, a pandemic, for instance, <laughs> um, it has simply become like, oh, wait a minute. And, and it may be that the, the decline that has been going on has taken a steeper turn you know like mm -hmm. it's so there definitely is a relationship um and i think that that um part of what we're seeing is is sort of like uh people suddenly waking up to oh wait a minute um we we need to pay attention to that uh because of this other event that you know happened and so oh look it's like the um the teacher shortage that people talk about it's like well, there's been teacher shortages in the same places for decades. Um, it's just that now you're paying attention to it because it seemed like it might have been caused by this other thing. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, it might have gotten worse, but it's been bad all along. Mm -hmm. um, so in the same same way. Um, so definitely related. Um, and, and I think that, that it's going to be more helpful to go to that more basic level of analysis and say, okay, let's talk about needs. Let's not, let's not even get into the instruction conversation yet. I mean, it's not a bad thing, but let's really focus on, and this is what I'm, the case I do make in the book, is we need to get at that more basic level and say, okay, let's provide for the needs and then see what shakes out in terms of in improving instruction mm -hmm. um, because you're going to get a different result because of that. Uh, in, in your book and, and uh, kind of switching gears and starting to talk about mm -hmm. your philosophy for what you believe to be effective, uh, you mentioned just, you know, just just then, you know, the, the basic needs, mm -hmm. a, a core part of what you advocate for in the book is back to the basics 2.0. Um, can you, for the listeners, can you sort of talk about what back to the basics 1.0 is and then how you view base back to the basics 2.0 as a, as a very necessary transition in the way that we think about, you know, what the basics are. Right. So basics 1.0 is very clear. Um, it was, it, you know, the traditional central pillar is teach the three R's, read and write and arithmetic. Um, no nonsense in the classroom is another one piece of it. Um, is um, typically what that shows up as is no nonsense being, you know, don't do social stuff. Don't do, uh, you know, don't provide social services. Don't, you know, don't put that fluff in. Um, and then strict discipline. Um, so strict uh, obedience to the teacher's authority. Um, so that's 1.0, and that was um, uh, really hit its stride in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, when that was really defined. There's actually a uh, part of the reason I'm clear about that is because there was a scholar who went back in the mid 70s or so and said, "Wait, what is this? <laughs> uh, maybe it's the late 70s." Anyway, he uh, he you know said, "Okay, 
let's really look at and analyze what do these people mean by that? Now, there's other people who mean a lot of different things, but those are the central pillars. And everyone in the, the three, uh, three R's 1.0 was clear on was mainly the, those three R's thing. Mm-hmm. Um, may, may I interrupt you just for a second? Sure, sure. So I am only doing this because it, it, it what you just said reminded me of a, a, a work that I did as a graduate student. Um, if you go back and look at some of the hearings around the Sputnik um, launch mm. by the Soviet Union and Admiral Hyman Rickover, um, mm. what you were describing as back to the basics 1.0 is basically the blueprint of what Rickover was saying to Congress needed, you know, needed to happen uh, to combat the Soviet Union as yes. part of the Cold War. I mean, exactly. yeah, yeah, it was striking. I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I just wanted to no, throw no, that, that in there. No, that, no, yeah. that, that's exactly right, is that there is a a very strong historical through line um, to it. Um, it just we got called the labeled the three R's uh, uh, in that particular, you know, after the in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there is this long tradition in you might call it education conservatism in which that is the central. Those are the central kind of ideas, even mm-hmm. if they're not called the three R's at the time. Um, but then it became labeled that. Um, so so I looked at that and. and I have to admit that I'm where I've shown up in the world is more on the educationally progressive side, Mm -hmm. but I make a stronger commitment to my scientific training and to say, okay, let's actually let empirical evidence decide the, the, what's true. And so I recognize that the three R's could possibly under the right circumstances be an effective way of approaching education. But in order to, test that theory, I think you need to get, once again, jumping down to a ba- more basic level of, uh, of science, of, of analysis, and say, okay, but wait a minute. What they're focused on is a particular academic delivery uh, call, you know, call for an academic delivery. Get those three R's in. Okay, great. But what, and this is the challenge I have for conser- educational conservatives, but what social structure are you saying needs to be that that is delivered within? Mm-hmm. You want strict obedience to authority, but are you saying that you're going to undermine children's needs for autonomy? You're going to harm them in order to get that? I don't think that's what any parent is not going to to say that's okay. Um, and I don't think there's any teachers who actually would say we're willing to you know risk harm in order to accomplish that. I think what they mean is in a properly organized school where the kids are coming in and are aligned with that school environment and what they're up to, then the school should do deliver on that central promise. But my card, my challenge is like, okay, but what you're talking about is a social structure that has to be analyzed. And that's where Back to Basics 2.0 comes in. Mm-hmm. Is a back to basic two point is about how do we organize that structure so that we can figure out which kind of instruction, under the proper circumstance, under under the proper social setting, academics can operate in this way. So the first principle of back to basics two point is to teach governance before academics. Now every teacher in the world has always done this. They say at the first day of class they say okay what are our rules or they say here are the rules either way. Um, but they're teaching governance before academics. The problem is, is that, you know, when when you have a structure that emphasizes like, oh, well, I'll send the kid off to the principal to solve a problem. Is, is are you really fo- focused on governance, or are you focused on trying to, you know, get down to this other thing first? So part of it is there's a the challenge is to develop more self management and less bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the underlying part piece of what teach governance before academics really means. Um, is, oh, okay, let's get these kids. If you're talking about six and seven-year-olds, you really need to have a social structure, a form of governance that's really going to work with the fact that they're six and seven years old. Okay, They're not going to sit down and be quiet for many hours at a time. You have to have something that works better. Um, so so there needs to be a focus on how do we develop that self-management so that we can get to the instruction that we need, those three R's, for instance. Uh, the second principle of it is manage for engagement about eliciting the deeper learning, not just generating boredom. So that's where I'm actually working on a prototype for um, an, an, a, a real-time assessment that teachers can use. Say, okay, 
how are we doing on engagement or motivation? And, and actually, the, the initial prototype will be focused on need support because we know that leads to the motivation and engagement we want. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we make sure that we're actually engaging them? Um, and there's a, there was an, epi, uh, uh, an uh, issue of EL, you know, ASCD's EL magazine that was engage and motivate on the cover and all these articles about motivation engagement. <laughs> it was so interesting to me that um, there's a part of engagement that's been in the literature for over about a decade and not a single mention of that. And then, you know, so, so, and then the, one of the articles actually mentioned a model and says it's a superior model. And it's uh, one that as even the researcher themselves who compiled it said, this is just people's intuitive reactions. It's not a proper model of engagement. So educators are not being given the information that they need to even deepen their understanding of how engagement works. Um, but that would be a piece of it is really getting engagement to be central. Um, and, and then the final one it actually just leads directly from that, which is improve citizenship with need support. So when when a situation gets difficult and hard, you know, some conflict is happening, you need to provide more need support, not less. So Sending the kid to the principal doesn't improve your relatedness with them. Um, you know, uh, you you need to be able to handle that within your within your realm and through supporting them, giving them more support, not kicking them out of the school and giving them less support. Um, so so this is the back to basics 2.0 uh, is what I would say is those you know the prior conditions in a social setting that can then if the three are you know if the 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 Three, three R's or back to basics 1.0 is going to be effective. Um, it needs to happen within a context in which these things are true. And I, and I, it's possible. Um, just from a motivation standpoint, it's more important that you have a solid relationship with an authority figure than it is to actually make a choice of your own. It's like it, there was a research in, in Hong Kong that showed that uh, under the right conditions, um, the kids feel autonomous about decisions made for them by an adult, but only when they have a trusting relationship with them. And so that's a very interesting possibility. And that's where I think that the back to basics 1.0, if you had truly deep trusting relationships and the autonomy was supported and, uh, and you were actually developing the competence, then yeah, that's a plausible possibility. So I, I assume that as you articulate, uh, both in, the, in our discussion and also in the book, Back to the Basics 2.0, I, I assume some of that had to come out of some of your own personal experiences as you worked in different types of alternative programs with, uh, with students. What, you know, if you, were, if you were leading those programs now or if you were leading a classroom and you were, you know, deeply committed to making sure that you were achieving the back to the basics 2.0 so that you could then turn your attention to uh, the 1.0 part of it. What would your mm -hmm. classroom look like and, and what would I experience if I was a student? So there's a, there's a number of ways it could look. Um, there actually are real world examples of these kinds of schools. Um, one way it could look is um, uh, I'm working with a fellow named Matt back up in, in Linden, Washington. Um, who is working on what he called the inspired learning model. Um, so for him, it's going to look like you're going to have, um, like his, his prototype is going to be a 48 kids, and it's going to be more like a one-room schoolhouse than like traditional school. So it'll be um, uh, work areas, um, in, in a sense, an open classroom, although that has some baggage that is challenging for people. Um, but it's going to you know kind of be about... Uh, flexibly, like, like the students will come in and they'll say, they'll have a, what, what they call homeroom meeting, um, where they'll say, okay, what am I doing today? Who am I doing? It? What's my schedule? Where am I going? What am I doing? Um, so they organize their day and then they go about it. But that's not going to look like, uh, and this is elementary age, so uh, that he's, uh, I think it's second through sixth grade. Um, and so all those age mixed, that's another thing, it's, it's, it's a broad age mix. Um, and then these kids are uh, figuring out what they're doing each day. Um, so they're following their interests and their passions. Um, he's going to have some components where we're, we're, they're doing standards-based uh, virtual, like the math will probably be a, a, a fair amount of online uh, learning for the math piece. Um, but then they're out and about in the community. Um, 
as well. So they, if they have an interest in, uh, you know, dentistry, then they can go visit a dentist, um, you know, where they can get a, uh, the older kids can probably get some opportunity to, to shadow someone in that environment. Um, so he's really looking at um, how do you enable kids to uh, follow the standards and things, but also do that in a way that actually uh, takes in, uh, advantage of their interests and their passions. Um, so, and then it could look, uh, you know, even different than that, but that, that would be where, where the, the key component is they're really setting up an environment in which the, the social structure is really strong is mm -hmm. if there's conflict, if there's a problem, we're going to deal with that. Um, and that takes priority over other things, um, rather than the other way around. And then, and, but it's also, how do we ensure people are, you know, really, leading with relatedness uh with relationship as you said i mean you said you you realize it's you know, it's a lot about relationship and that's a key component that's what you know teach governance before academics is also build relationships before you you know start ordering people around uh so so that's that's one way it can look um is is create more he he wants the feel of a one-room schoolhouse amongst this group um mm -hmm. but then also kids going out and, and accessing, taking advantage of all the tools and, and opportunities we have today that we didn't have when one-room schoolhouses were the dominant thing, um, is, but that's a one-room schoolhouse with, that's much more open and, and available to the uh, community and the wider world. It's interesting, inter interesting when you know, you're describing that example of your colleague and then, and then previously when you were you know, talking about your own perspective, Mm -hmm. A listener might hear that and think, okay, Don is is presenting a progressive educational idea that's really far out there. But in the book, you actually make this great point that this idea of exactly what you describe in Back to the Basics 2.0 and, and the characteristics of that is actually a trope that we see in the mass in, in, in entertainment and media all yeah. the time in, in movies and documentaries. Do you want to talk about some of those and what and, and what I thought what I think is so interesting is that these are movies that generally speaking people really like and so right, right, it, right. it almost feels like there's a yearning for this and we see glimpses of it in some of these uh entertainment you know titles uh and and yet you know to, to hear you describe it if you didn't if you didn't juxtapose that with what you're saying you would think that what you're saying is completely new or you know you know, we, we, you can go through the movies. You know, I mentioned Freedom Riders earlier, mm -hmm. um, but you also have Dangerous Minds, Stand and Deliver, The Ron Clark Story, Music of the Heart, um, and Beyond the Blackboard was TV movie, so it might not be as well known. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, you you've got people like Michelle Pfeiffer and and uh, Hillary Swank, and um, I forget who are the other people. You know, you've got really amazing actors, yeah. actresses, um, and there's actually uh, you can go into documentaries that also have that similar um uh feel to them you know true stories and that that's the other thing is is i'm talking about like the the ones i just mentioned are all based on a true story kind of things like i mentioned uh it was uh freedom riders is actually in the district where i i went to school um mm -hmm. and so what they do to me hollywood got it on on the level of like okay what really happens is you develop this deep relationship with somebody now, the problem is that when you look at something like uh, Lean on Me, um, which is also based on a true story, but the trueness of the, what they portrayed was very um, different from the reality. Um, Lean on Me was the story of a principal in New Jersey um, who was, became, got a lot of attention because he like, was pictured holding a baseball bat and he was getting tough on kids and kicking a bunch of kids out of school. This is a high school. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, for drug dealing and various offenses, you know, with n no due process, uh, just he decided they were had to go, and they did. Um, and so, you you have these things. But th what Hollywood had to do was he had to make sure that when with Morgan Freeman playing the principal, um, you know, they had to make sure that in order for this to be believable, just from a from a basic performance standpoint, from a written standpoint, he has to have some strong relationship with kids in the in the classes in particular mm -hmm. um is and and that's what they portrayed was like he really was passionately engaged with the kids and and having making demands of the kids this is the the 
if there's a science behind what would work in things is it's what's called being a warm demander. So hmm. it's not just, you know, let them do whatever um, in, and be warm, but not demanding um, and just purely demanding. That's authoritarian. That's not doesn't work very good either. But what really works is the combination of both. And so what they portray is somebody who is somewhat of a warm demander. Now, whether that jibes with reality is a whole different question. But hmm. that Hollywood got that gets that relationship is at the core of what a teaching learning relationship is about, teacher student relationship is about. And if you don't have that strong relationship, you probably aren't, you know, <laughs> something's off. Um, but the other piece of that is that they also get like there's a scene in Ron Clark story. Um, where this kid who's been, you know, everybody knows he's smart, but he's, you know, struggled because he's, you know, got this defiant attitude. And then Ron Clark finally is getting through to him. And, and Ron Clark's like hovering over him on the desk when he's trying to do a math problem. And the, the kid finally says, you know, step back, <laughs> you know, really <laughs> asserts it and says, you know, back off, dude. And he's like, okay, wait. you know, um, but it, but it really is. He's, he's an example of that, uh, of both that warmth and that demand. Um, and, and you have to be able to, you know, the kid has to have the autonomy to actually say, this is, I, I'm going to do this. Now, you, they could be doing it because they find the, the math intriguing and he was studying math. Mm -hmm. You know, he might find the math intriguing, maybe, but he could also, it's perfectly legitimate to do it because he likes the teacher, you know, because he liked Ron Clark. Um, both of those ways of approaching it are fine. Not everyone has to be passionate about math, even though they should learn it. Um, but they should learn it because either... They find something fascinating in the math or they find a teacher they respect um, but they have yeah. to be feeling like i'm in, i'm driving towards this for a reason and that's i think what what hollywood often got right about those stories was portraying either the teacher's passion for the kids the teacher's passion for their subject um stand and deliver was really clear on both of those mm -hmm. um but there's a passion that gets shared and, and, and motivation is contagious. Um, that's right, actually, right. it is true, <laughs> you know, um, but you need more than that. You also have to have, and this is, this is the thing about being a warm demander in the education context. Also, you have to have both the relationship and the structure of the teaching. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't have any problem with direct instruction. It's just a way of structuring a particular situation and saying, okay, in this structure, you're going to do a lot better. Um, but what I would argue is before you get to the direct instruction, you have direct instruction is going to work most effectively in the context of a trusting relationship between that student and that teacher. And if the trust isn't there, the results aren't going to be there either. Yeah. You know, um, that, so much of what you said is just so brilliant right there. And I, and I love the fact that you're analyzing the media messages. Um, you'll appreciate this. And I, and I think it's a indication that you and I are kindred spirits of sorts that, um, about 12, 13 years ago, I was able to teach a special topics class because of an award that mm -hmm. I won. So I could teach anything that I wanted, you know, right. something that rarely happens even, uh, you know, in, in university settings. And the class that I did was actually on the topic of classroom motivation, because although I'm in the field of communication, that's my research background. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, uh, two of the books that I used in the class were DC and Ryan, some of their work on mm -hmm. self-determination theory. And we also read and watched uh, 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 um, the ghost writers, um, yep. the freedom writers. I'm sorry. Freedom writers, yeah. um, and, and so that was sort of the basis for bringing undergraduate communication students and some graduate students into this material. Um, and so w when I read, when I was reading about that in your book, it just really stood out. Uh, I want to transition now. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing that we haven't talked about nearly directly enough, given that it's a, a focus of your book, is when, when you approach education holistically in the ways that you're describing, you make an argument that this is important for issues of equity. Can you, can you yeah. talk about how you link those two things together and why you think that um, they're so important to talk about in the same, in the same way or, you know, as being linked together that, in that way? Yeah. So, so one of the things that I, I didn't call my work, I didn't even refer to equity until fairly recently and within the last couple of years. Um, and, and part of the reason for that was because um, when I looked out at the educational, well, well even the societal conversation around equity, um, I didn't see myself like taking, taking on those particular issues like, like race, gender, disability, um, mm -hmm. 
sexual orientation, things like that. Um, so I, I didn't see myself as like championing those particular things in my work. Um, and so what happened a few years ago was I, I started realizing like, or, or actually I think one of the one of the important turns for me was the National Academies of Sciences put out a consensus definition of equity. And, and, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, cool, <laughs> you know, <laughs> great. Let's see what they really mean by that. Cause most of the people in the, in the public discourse are vague in general about it. And it's, you know, hard to nail them down. And so I went to their definition. Great. You know, and it was basically, um, that it was a three part definition and it talked about, um, distributing resources fairly, removing structural barriers, and then the the having parity across uh, groups, you know, parity of uh, of outcomes across groups, and and when I, and they they mentioned I can't remember I think it was in yeah I can't remember which exactly one of the three had mentioned needs. It says that the 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 whatever you're doing has to be matched to needs. And I thought, okay, and then I looked through, and there's actually two different reports where this came out of one in 2019, one in 2020, and and so I went through those reports, and I could not find anything where they talked about what they meant by needs. And, and that confused me, because it's like, if it's important. So I realized that, that part of what the discourse around equity has been is like, it's all about outcomes. Is, um, and, and, you know, Kamala Harris is a big champion of equity. And, mm -hmm. and she, she um, I think in one of my videos on the post, I you know, quote her as, you know, talking about equity. Um, but she's talking about outcomes. And then one of the things that people may not realize is there's a very um, interesting critique of that in on the opposing political side um, that talks about, well, if you're pursuing equity and you're using these outcomes as measures, then it gets really, you know, you're going to run into some problems. In fact, one one person actually asserted that that pursuing equity inevitably leads to totalitarian government. Now, I don't agree with him, but <laughs> the point is that there's a critique out there that there's there are concerns that are raised when you use outcomes as an accountability uh -huh. measure. Um, and it's like, okay, and, and actually they have a very important point. Um, and so for me, I, when I was looking at that consensus definition, I said there's just a little needs to tweak just slightly. And that is um, the distribution of resources needs to be fair in the satisfaction of needs. Removing structural barriers needs to be about need satisfaction, and you, the whole goal is to satisfy needs with parity across the group. So you put needs at the center. And so for me, I have what I call my recipe, which uses those three. But the first piece is define needs scientifically. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm like, okay, if you have that, if you say, okay, what we're talking about are primary human needs. They're universal. One of the defining properties of our psychological needs is DC and Ryan you know, have to get a lot of credit for saying, well, we need to be really, really careful about what we call a need. And so they've uh, started off with three criteria. Now they have 11 different criteria to make sure that we're really being clear and precise about what we mean by need. Um, so if taking their definition, that's where, you know, the, they've, they've looked at things beyond autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Those ones were the initial ones that they proposed and have been very well validated, at, you know, over decades since, but some other ones have been recently proposed, like is beneficence, you know, doing something for something larger than yourself. Mm -hmm. Is that a need? Well, there was a lot of evidence that suggested it definitely boosts well-being, but it didn't actually have any negative effects if it wasn't met. And so it's a secondary need, not a primary one. Mm -hmm. um, or they looked at uh, meaningfulness um, and said, okay, is that a need? Well, what they found was when you control for autonomy, competence, relatedness, and beneficence, there's nothing left over for meaningfulness to explain. So actually, it's a derivative need. It derives from the dissatisfaction of those other ones. So that's an interesting point, too, in education is like, if you actually are meeting their needs, meaningfulness will arise. And so they will, we will make it meaningful because it's meeting our needs. Um, so that actually is, that's part of why I can say with confidence that three R's, one, or uh, back to basics 1.0 might work under specific circumstances. If the kids are really getting all their needs satisfied and mm -hmm. then you're doing the three, the, the back to basics, sure, that will probably work. 
Um, but you have to have that prior condition in place first. So, so I guess I guess the last question that I have. So, put yourself in the shoes of a teacher that is listening to this podcast discussion, and um, that teacher gets really jazzed by you know mm. what they hear you saying, but they're still working in a public school yep. or a, a school system that that controls a lot of what they're able to do. Yeah. What does that teacher start doing so that they can start moving in a direction that is consistent with what you know you're excited about? Well, I think getting really clear on those psychological needs is a really key part because, you know, what the what what the model, what self-determination is saying is like if you if you satisfy those needs, good things follow. Um, to put it overly simply, but um, mm -hmm. but that's the that's where you're going to get the motivation and the engagement. Um, now, there's some different contexts that these teachers may be in, um, and they're going to be more challenging or less challenging. Um, so, so if you're in a context in which the kids, you know, beyond what the school is providing, if your kids are in a in a home context that's very challenging, then then that's going to create more challenge for the teachers. We all know this, mm -hmm. um, and so it's a, I would say it's even more important to focus on what social structure do we need to provide for their needs, and we mean we need to be clear first on those primary needs and and we can you know air water food sleep shelter uh autonomy competence relatedness is, is start mm -hmm. there um and there may be limitations on that but that's where you're going to really find the the biggest traction is start with primary needs so understanding needs in particular the psychological needs in the educational setting um, and this goes in for even if you're in a wealthy district um, part of what you need to do is realize that because of the nature of faux achievement and and the fact that that these kids are under uh crisis uh Look at uh, there's some re documentaries in the last few years. Um, most likely to succeed, and there's another one. Uh, but but they're looking at how much pressure, even you know, or, or especially the kids in these wealthy schools mm -hmm, in these wealthy mm -hmm. neighborhoods are being under put on pressure, and they have higher suicide rates. You know, the the kids in the in poverty might be you know getting having problems with the violence in their neighborhood but in the wealthy neighborhoods it's the kids doing the violence to themselves that is a huge problem and so focusing on those needs once again is going to be the be the the focus is figure out where does their you know does the college prep program that i was in uh, fortunately we you know didn't have any suicides that year but when i was there but it's something that there certainly was a lot of pressure um, and so how can we look at those situations and say, okay, how can we enhance their autonomy? How can we enhance relatedness? How can we enhance their sense of competence? Not their, uh, like, like part of the demander part is it has to be a warm demander and they have to be like, competence is not an objective feature from a psychological need perspective. Competence is a perception, not the circumstance. Mm -hmm. So how do we help them perceive themselves as related, autonomous, and uh, competent? So I would say that that's the that's the the most valuable starting point. And like I said, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm prototyping a tool so that we can uh, mm -hmm. teachers can be more uh, cognizant of like, okay, let's measure what's going on, uh, a combination of what how are needs being satisfied in my class at this moment, um, and then what am I doing to support that? Um, and so that's something I'm I'm you know want to get out there. And it's something that unlike other climate measures, this would be a type of climate measure, but it's something that you could you know, process within a few days, uh, not get back months later when it's, you know, no longer useful or, right, or right. some of the, the, uh, climate measures are done once a year. And it's like, yeah, that's not useful information anymore. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I'm working on one that'll be really useful teachers in, in their classroom, you know, that they can respond to within days, not months or years. Very good. Don, I, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed reading your book and, and this conversation was uh, really exciting and, and I think very thought provoking. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Don Berg is an educational researcher and practitioner, and he just recently released a 2022 book titled Schooling for Holistic Equity, How to Manage the Hidden Curriculum for K-12. We will have a link to uh, Don's website uh, where you can find out more information about the book if you would like to do so. But you can also go to a local bookstore uh, or a bookstore of your choice and be able to um, order or find um, a way of getting the book to yourself. Uh, it's a great read, and I think that you'll enjoy it both because of the stories that Don tells, but also 
um, the way that he crystallizes uh, the importance of, of um, how to think about how students experience a classroom. It, it, was, it was very meaningful for me. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. Uh, our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Of course, if you have ideas, thoughts, or comments, don't hesitate to reach out by email. We would love to hear from you, uh, and we hope that you have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening.